Saint Hildegard the Polymath once said, Humankind, full of all creative possibilities, is God's work. Humankind alone is called to assist God. Humankind is called to co-create. With nature's help, humankind can set into creation all that is necessary and life-sustaining. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. Larissa Bianco here. John Johnson could not be with us today, so it's myself and a very special guest today, Matthew Smith of Hildegard College. Matthew, it's great to be here with you. Hi, Larissa. It's good to be here with you. I wanted to ask you first about Hildegard. Matthew Smith is the founder and president. So can you talk about, I guess, just give us the background, your your own background, how you, your journey through the academic world and how you came to be the president and founder of this new college? Yeah, sure. Um, so Hildegard College is, is created by a group of a founding team of of academics and also business people who collectively saw a need not just for a new college but for a new model of Christian liberal arts college and to describe that I can I can say a bit about my own journey so I taught um I studied renaissance and medieval literature and philosophy in graduate school and my life as an academic scholar was in writing about authors like Shakespeare and John Milton, and Thomas Aquinas, and folks like that. Um, and I taught at a conventional, several kind of conventional big universities and Christian universities in my time. Having that firsthand experience of teaching at a conventional university uh, what 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 I quickly learned was this was not a university. If by university we mean something unified or something that unifies the education, but it was a multiversity. And at the time, this was maybe 2018. My oldest child was beginning to approach the age of 10, and I thought, you know, would I be happy with her attending one of these schools, the school I taught at, or similar kinds of universities? Uh, just plug in your you know, your your go-to private university uh, in, 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 into the story. And that's the kind of school I'm thinking about. And my answer was not yes or no. My answer was, well, it totally depends. It depends on what classes she takes, which professors teach them, um, and, and, and a specific course that I would kind of need to chart uh, like, a, like a sailor through the waters of this school. And... Um, and of course, as a professor, you get some tuition benefit for your kid going there. But then I began to think, well, what about all these kids that I'm teaching, these 18 to 22 year olds uh, and, and the $50,000 a year they're paying? Um, can I answer the question with any confidence? I am. I believe in the education they're getting at this institution. And the answer is no, not because it's a bad education, but because there is no single answer to that question. And so the most universities, if you pose to any typical faculty member, what will 
I learn at your college or what kind of person will I become at your college? The answer at best, or the question at best is going to be incomprehensible and maybe even embarrassing because it just doesn't apply to what we call a university today, which is really a multiversity. So I, I describe that because that's the um, that's the direction that my thoughts were were taking as I was teaching in kind of the normally scripted academic career path um, and thinking, well, this this doesn't seem to be working. This doesn't seem to be right. I need to be able to say I'm completely confident in what we're teaching. Not only that, but enthusiastic about people making the investment to come study with us. And so uh, that's, that's you know, around 2017, 2018 is when I begin to consider what an alternative model for a college might look like mm-hmm. and how we could, you know, further um, solve some of the problems that I think plague higher education today. So for you, it wasn't, it was a matter of it being a cohesive university, um, unified under something greater than just different subjects everywhere or a fragmented education. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I put it that way, almost abstractly on purpose, because I think it's important before we start looking at, okay, this university claims to have an awesome nursing program, or this university has this great, you know, Christian core curriculum, or, you know, wh- whatever we're saying, oh, we, we, we learn about, what's that? Everything Specialties. is specialized. Yeah. yeah. Or, or, you know, we, we have a great uh, course on human trafficking at our school or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, before we really get into those topics, I think my, my experience almost as a phenomenon was that the the university system was broken. How do you know it's broken? Well, we can't answer the the most obvious question to ask. What will I learn at your school? They're not saying you learn about virtue by reading Plato and Aristotle and Dante and Shakespeare or about the human condition by reading Virgil and Augustine and Machiavelli and Thomas Hobbes. You know, they're not they're not able to say that. They're just, you, what will I learn at your university? The answer does, doesn't make any sense. And so, of course, my um, my thoughts had been going towards classical education. I was classically educated myself in college. My children attended a classical K through 12 school. And by classical, I mean specifically the Christian, um, the Christian embodiment of a traditional liberal arts education, which was Christianized in the Middle Ages, of course. But today we think of it as pointing us towards things that are free, both um, in 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 the public as citizens, I think morally free, and then, of course, ultimately spiritually free. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I mean by classical education. My, my mind was going towards classical models of college. And at the time, I had become aware of a movement of classical colleges in the country, some of which were brand new. Others were several decades old. But none of them were were um, were really especially old outside of maybe something like St. John's College. And um, a lot of these, these schools, they not only were they classical, but they looked different. They were tiny, you know, maybe 100 to 250 students. And they were radically affordable, you know, $15,000 a year or less. And they, you know, as I went and took a semester and visited a lot of these schools and got to know the founders and the presidents and spent a lot of time, especially with students, you know, at, at a cafe getting coffee or sitting in on a class and chatting afterwards, what I found was that the sense of student community at these schools was 
hmm. um, was extraordinary. And the deep uh, sense of friendship that they had with each other, how that contributed to the way that they were to learn um, as they're tackling more difficult, big life questions than a typical university student does. Mm-hmm. They're asking, what is goodness? What is justice? What is faith? What is being? Um, what is human? What is the human condition? And what is the, what is the solution for it? Um, what is the nature of an institution and so forth? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're able to do it in this community of friendship that I thought is, is irreplaceable and um, and impossible to have at a in a kind of big university environment. And so we began immediately to start looking into, as other people joined my conversation, what that might look like, and especially in a place like Southern California. Yes, and we have talked about this in the past. I remember you telling me you intentionally keep, keep your class size down. You just explained why, but what is your what is your max? So our max is 15 students a class. And our, I should say maybe a bit about our um, the nature of our program so it can be clear why this would be more extraordinary. We have uh, Hildegard College. Is a, it's a new Christian liberal arts college in Southern California. We're in Orange County in Costa Mesa, California, uh, just a few miles from the beach. And we combine a great texts program in the trivium and quadrivium. These are the seven traditional liberal arts. We combine that with a concentration in entrepreneurship. And this entrepreneurship concentration, I can describe it more at more length if you want, but um, essentially we are bridging the classical approach to the liberal arts that is learning for the sake of freedom and liberty with a practical education and how to do something about it in the world. And so launching students in the world, not just with a liberal arts degree, but with also some practical knowledge. And in our case, given the project-based curriculum, some practical experience. So our uh, the bulk of our curriculum is a chronological journey in you know the arts, literature, economics, politics, mathematics, history, psychology, the natural sciences, a chronological journey from antiquity up to the modern period through the greatest works created in all of those disciplines, studied not in siloed areas of knowledge, but cross-disciplinarily as they were intended to be uh, uh, studied. Um, and as their influence had, you know, understanding the historical context from antiquity to the present. And we do this in classes of 15 students or fewer. And so uh, the classes are, uh, we, we use the term Socratic dialogue. I mean, I think that's mm-hmm. maybe means different things for different people. But what we mean by it is that faculty act as guides where they come into the class. Everybody has, you know, their book with them. They crack it open. Uh, it's intimidating. It's long, maybe. Uh, it looks like it's about important issues, and yet we learn how to ask questions of it, read it together, and after a two-and-a-half-hour meeting on it, lo and behold, you understand so much more than you thought you could have. And over the course of three or four years in this college, um, accumulate this this um, this map of intellectual history where you can now identify, oh, I heard this on the news the other day. That's you know kind of a Cartesian model that that I can relate to the 17th century philosopher René Descartes and his idea in, in the meditations or whatever, you know, you would, however you want to go with that. And so, um, yes, small classes driven by discussion, even in the entrepreneurship courses, even in the science and mathematics courses. Um, of course, there's some sense in which we make sure students understand the essentials of what it means to lead an organization, read a balance sheet, create a business model, um, and so forth. But uh, the, the entrepreneurship courses take advantage of the idea 
or the the reality that our students are well trained in Socratic discussion, understand fundamental human needs through the Great Text program. And then the the fellowship aspects of it that you you talked about, you know, could a lot of that be contributed by the types of students you're bringing in? Do you think you can order the classes in such a way that the students will carry it out? other than the small class size, because that's obvious, like how, how can the classes and then the um, design of the college itself create that friendship where they want to continue outside of class and it's not closing your book? Yeah, I think that's a, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's the question. And really what you're asking is how do you, um, how do you infuse a, uh, a place of learning with a culture and specifically in our case, aspiring to have a culture where learning is a way of life. Mm-hmm. Learning is a way of life. And which, and by that, I mean, you learn so that you become virtuous and you become virtuous so that you love the right things and you love the right things, things that are lovely and worth your love and pursuit so that you can actually pursue them in the world. Um, so, you know, our application is very, looks very different than most college applications. We're a selective college. Think of us almost as a standalone honors college. And yet we're not particularly interested in a student telling us I have a 4.6 GPA and I got this score on the SAT. Um, We are more interested in their responses to some questions that we ask them, Uh, you know, short essay questions about the the nature of learning and uh, the uh, the purpose of having a mind um, of the relationship between faith and learning. But we also give students, and this is unique to us, uh, instead of saying, okay, now upload your application letter, which, you know, people get coached on how to do in school, and you can do that, you can certainly do that, uh, we're, and we're excited to read it, but we say, essentially, introduce yourself however you want to be introduced. And at this point in the application, students can say, they can type into a text field, they can upload a letter, they can upload media files, audio, video, artwork, photography. They can write a poem. I mean, whatever they want to do, they can present a commonplace book of quotations that are meaningful to them and comment on them. I mean, I almost don't want to describe the options that come to mind because I want students to have free kind of license to present themselves how they want to. And the reason we want students to have this blank slate, present yourself however you want to, is that the academic games that a lot of students play up through high school um, are preparing you for a certain kind of college. Mm-hmm. That is just going to sort of treat you as a means to an end, funnel you through their system, tell you you're going to graduate and get a job. And um, I think we'd rather pra- pragmatists in the way that they think about learning. Uh, and instead, what we care about is people who are going to contribute to a way of life at our school that is going to enhance the learning experience. So it's not just what happens in the classroom, but mm-hmm. also outside of the classroom. And another, you know, another um, another unique characteristic of our program is that we curricularize, that is, include in the in the required curriculum itself. The entire curriculum is in common. All students take the same classes, except for some electives and a senior capstone project. But we curricularize what we call formation. And again, this is one of these words that can mean a lot of things depending on what context you're coming from. Mm-hmm. What we mean by formation is becoming the kind of person that actually values and loves the things that are worthy of our love. So if you think of our motto is querere, which is to seek, 
mm-hmm. amare, which means to love, and idificare, which means to create or build or edify. So to seek, to love, and to create. Uh, the reason we have that motto is that we think that this is this is the complete um, kind of circle, if you will, of mm-hmm. a liberal arts education. It's not just about learning, you know, uh, learning what is good, but you actually have to become through formation the kind of person that desires or loves what is good. And it's not just about desiring what is good and loving it, but being equipped with the things you need to actually advance those things in the world. So to seek to love and to create, and that middle part to love becoming the kind of people, that's what we describe as formation. And so we have a specific methodology that one of the founding team members, Jeff Tanner, has developed um, out of um, uh, um, eight practices that are used. It's used in executive coaching. It's used in um, sort of uh, business incubation among different business leaders, nonprofit peer groups, churches. This is a methodology of eight practices or eight disciplines through which we uh, identify challenges and learn to move forward with and through those challenges. It's applicable to spiritual life, to professional life, to academic life, and is where we ask students to learn how to write and communicate within this formation class. Um, and so for us, I think it's unique that we have uh, in our curriculum, we have we have aspects that represent the seeking. Mm-hmm. This is the trivium, the quadrivium, the great text program, and also our courses in mathematics, music, science, theology. And then we have uh, we have the at the end to the creation, the edification in the entrepreneurship concentration, but we also curricularize formation in the middle um, coursework and and tools that we give students that help them become the sorts of people that will actually follow what's good. So are you saying that that's the, um, the entrepreneurship and the creation is that when you say that's the third part, is that the last year maybe that they start that and they begin with the quadrivium and the trivium or is it kind of all at once that they're being given these three things? It is, um, yes, yeah, another very relevant question. It's 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 definitely all at once. Okay. And the reason is that uh, most universities are set up with general education. Mm-hmm. It's about 60 units typically. Sometimes you have some credits already that you apply from high school. And then your major. Right. And the smallest majors are around 100 or around 60 units themselves. And so 120 units total, if you're talking about college credits. So at minimum, half of your education is gen ed and half is your major at most universities. And sometimes Mm -hmm. the major is much more. But what happens is that gen ed has taken a dive, both globally and in the United States. People, I mean, what you hear students say is, I just want to get my gen ed out of the way. I want to apply as many transfer credits as I can. And I honestly think that there's a, a, a certain kind of wisdom to that thinking, because in response to that, most universities neglect it. And they're pretty meaningless classes. You take your random intro to philosophy or intro to psychology or college algebra class. Um, and sure enough, you're going to find some fantastic faculty, including part-time faculty teaching those classes all over the place. But as a whole, the gen ed program will make no sense will give you no sense of a journey or common sense of an understanding of the purpose of learning or a philosophy of education. Um, we've, on top of that, so not only has gen ed taken a dive, and so we are we do not have this division between gen ed and the major. Our program is okay. one cohesive program. Okay. But I, I've also found in my years, you know, 15 or so years teaching in the college level, 
that no matter what you tell students or teach students or help them to discover at the kind of lower levels, whether that's K through 12 education or even in their gen ed courses, these foundational liberal arts courses, as they're historically understood, no matter what you tell them or try to teach them, they're going to identify with and come to value whatever ideas they experience in their more creative, major-oriented courses. And this is just, it's just human nature. We tend to get excited about and identify with those areas where expressed, where, uh, those venues in which we're allowed to be more expressive and creative. So you can, uh, you can have a fantastic kind of common core gen ed program, and yet uh, a student go into, call it a theology class that's kind of liberation theology oriented in their major, and they're asked to go to a rally, and they're asked to deconstruct their faith through some um, kind of avant-garde assignment, and then before you know it, that's what they're all about, and they come back to your class and say it's imperialistic, or they come back to your class and say uh, it's not worth reading, or it's racist, or something and uh-huh. the conversation, those important conversations about the nature of education at the canning can't even be had at that at that point. Or, you know, if a student has a a, a certain you know, a lot of a lot of great universities that have good um good honors colleges that are maybe great text oriented, uh, uh they, they struggle with this problem where these students take these honors college courses and read great texts and then go into their majors, say nursing or business. And it's completely disintegrated from what they learned before. But now they're being asked to build and they're being told you can create, you have what you need. You're now a a proto-professional. And before you know it, the student has now identified themselves in that way. So this is a long way of answering your question, which is to say from day one, from the first week of classes next fall, when our first freshman class begins, students will be studying entrepreneurship. They'll be studying um the quadrivial arts, this is mathematics and you know, uh, arithmetic, geometry, music, okay. metaphysics. Uh, and then they'll also be studying the great text and formation all together at one time. Okay, that's helpful. So what would an entrepreneurship class look like for an f- incoming freshman who just graduated high school? Is it like how to make a spreadsheet, how to think about those things? I don't know what yeah, that's a good it's a good question. So the our entrepreneurship program and maybe I could say something about why it's entrepreneurship and not business. So some people think of entrepreneurship and they think learning how to start a business and you certainly learn how to start a business as an entrepreneur. But we mean the word entrepreneur as essentially equivalent to what the word polymath used to mean or I guess it still does but people don't use the word polymath. A polymath is somebody who is not just an expert in one thing but is proficient in many things. And so our namesake, St. Hildegard von Bingen, the 12th century Benedictine abbess, was a polymath. She did theology, she wrote plays, she wrote music, she made medicine and did science. Um, she brewed beer. I mean, she was she was a true polymath and had the effect that she did, as did folks like you know, Leonardo da Vinci and Ben Franklin, these polymathic characters who um, were able to, to impact culture in a unique way. That's um, that's what we believe society needs in the next generation of leaders. And so an entrepreneur for us is somebody who can lead others through times of uncertainty and challenges, but also times of growth and innovation because they understand things from a variety of perspectives. And very specifically for us, also because they care about the formation of a leader, that an organization can never be healthier than its leader is. 
So what does an entrepreneurship course look like at our school? Of course, students are going to learn the essentials of how to look at a balance sheet and how to do market research to test out the viability of a certain minimum viable product and things like that. But they're also going to be thinking about the meaning of work. They're going to be thinking about what it means to be a purpose-driven organization. And our all of our entrepreneurship courses, while they have um, what you might think of as the fundamentals of a business education, they are also taught with our civic partners. And these are leaders from industries and nonprofit organizations outside the school who come in and co-author, co-design assignments with our faculty. And so you might have, um, say, in a uh, uh, communication and, and outreach course, you might have somebody from a, uh, uh, it could be a, a, a media company um, that we work with, or we have a PR company that's one of our civic partners or a healthcare company. Um, or an educational company come in and say, hey, this is our assignment. We're having a problem connecting our students with the after-school programs that can help them. Or we're having a problem um, drawing more, uh, especially younger audiences to our online behavioral health resources or something like that. And they present you with the problem and the faculty member will now guide uh, in in partnership with the civic partner, our, our small class of you know, 12 to 15 students as a team and how to tackle that problem for that company or that organization, if it's a nonprofit. Uh, and that person will kind of be part of the class for that unit of the semester. And we make sure to kind of infuse every class with many of our yeah. civic partners. And this really came about not because we just thought it was a cool idea, but because as we're building the school, we're finding all of these leaders from organizations telling us that's exactly what we need. We need people who can think well, are mm-hmm. formed in virtue, but also have industry experience in a variety of areas of work. That's what we need. How can I get involved? How can I help? And so that's where the Civic Partners program was born. That's really cool. So you're going to have students graduating, completely changing the world. Yeah. And we have, I should say, we have a, a the last part of our, our entrepreneurship concentration with six classes, a required internship, and then there's a 12 okay. unit, which is equivalent to four classes, senior capstone, we call the Polymath Project. And this is purposely um, undefined in that the only requirement is that students have to convince us, the faculty, that the thing they want to build is a worthy cause, that it's something that actually demands to be a problem demands to be solved. And secondly, that whatever they claim to be able to do in that year's time can be done within the scope of that time. So this can be done individually. You could start a business if you want. Um, it doesn't have to be starting something new. It could be solving a problem for a current organization that you're really interested in, maybe one of the civic partners or somebody else. It could be continuing to do a specific project for the company or organization with which you did a an internship, or you can do it in teams. If you know three students want to get together to yeah. create a certain you know tech platform or you know media production company or something, they could do that. So this is sort of our way of both launching students into the world after graduation, but also um, essentially assessing their ability to see and approach a problem from beginning to end in all of its aspects. Hmm. Do you ask anything about that in the original applications? Like as you're, I don't know, as people, are you interested? Like what what might your polymath project yeah, be? Something right. like that. Yeah. What, we, it's not the application. It is, uh, it's something that will come up in interviews. So all, all okay. applicants 
who progress past the first round are invited to an interview with one of the faculty members. And um, we've had students even outside of interview processes say some really, I was talking with a student the other day who gave me this really interesting idea. She said, you know, for my polymath project, um, one of the things that I care a lot of is, is, is art and exposing people to good art and new art. But um, a lot of really good artists are difficult to find. You might know one here or one there or know that this one has this website. But what if there were a retail shop online where artists who affiliate with one another, who think of themselves as part of a similar movement or care about the same themes or are addressing the same kind of social challenges can um, create a kind of a, a, a retail collective Mm-hmm. And so then you can now go to a website and kind of type in keywords where you would uh, or you, that, that would organize your search into these different branded collectives of artists and then be able to look at their works together. Um, think about the kind of power of that collective brand recognition and that mutual promotion and the way it could expose so many more people to good art. That's what just she was just the student, this remarkable mm-hmm. student, but just thinking about um as yeah. she was considering and working on her Hildegard application. That's really cool. And that and that makes me see another outlet for it is that's interesting is a lot of liberal arts colleges, art is one of those things that you might have fine arts courses and you'll have like music. I feel like every liberal arts college in America has some sort of good music education. But a lot of the other arts are kind of lost within mm-hmm. the liberal arts like you kind of have to go to the mm-hmm. big universities if you want to get like I wanted to be a dancer but there's no liberal arts program that has good dance programs yeah. so I went to a university and did not get a good education and I think Hildegard can give an opportunity for students who want to be artists and still get a liberal arts education um, to combine that in one I don't know necessarily know how but what with what you're saying with her Someone who wants to be a sculptor could come to Hildegard, whereas they might not be able to go yeah. to arts degrees or someone who yeah, wants and to I think, design. I think that's exactly right. Uh, we we know that Hildegard College is not for everybody, and there are students for whom we're not a good fit. If you know for certain that you want to be a nurse and want to get your nursing credential while you're in college, then you shouldn't go to Hildegard College. I mean, you could come for a couple of years, I guess, and then transfer. Make mm-hmm. it a good, affordable art tuition of 16000 a year, which is about a quarter of the price of a typical average university, uh, private university. But, you know, we know that if you want to be a nurse or if you're certain that you want to be a chemical engineer or something like that, you should probably go to a different kind of school. But the, you know, statistically speaking, and when I say this to students, they always think that they're the exception. But statistically speaking, it's fewer than 10% of college graduates that have a career in an area directly related to their college major. Fewer than 10% have a career. So that means 90% plus of college graduates, four-year college graduates, if they have a career, have a career in an area that is not directly related to their major. And upon reflection, if you ask questions about the return on investment and why people thought that college was worth it, why was it worth paying for, why was it worth devoting time to and studying in, it almost never has to do with, well, prepare me for this certain job. It has everything to do with exposing me to different areas of learning. And then I think most most prevalently has everything to do with relationships. Well, I was mentored and I made lifelong friends and uh, my friends and I, in, in, in my courses, we, we travailed together and we experienced adversity and overcame that adversity together. Those kind of formative experiences. 
Now, I will say that I, Hildegard College is a specific version of a model. It's one iteration of a model that I would love to see. I mean, my dream is that in 30 years, there are, uh, we inspire other people to create versions of Hildegard for specific career paths. Ours is for the polymath. Ours is for the polymath, the person who wants to lead others in organizations, both nonprofit, for-profit ministry and the arts, somebody who wants this deep liberal arts education, but also some practical know-how. But I could imagine, uh, I mean, you were talking about not being able to study dance and liberal arts at the same school intensively. I could imagine one for dancers specifically. Why not? I could imagine one for nurses or engineers specifically. Um, these, this is the direction that universities are already going, by the way, you know, as they are customizing their gen ed programs to individual major tracks in order to, um, essentially make, make time to completion of degree more efficient, right? Mm -hmm. They want less common education universities. They want to say less. These are the things we think are important for everybody to study. And they want, oh, this is your specialized science track. So you're not really going to have to study literature or philosophy. You know, you'll study history, but only the history of science. You'll study your, right. you know, your, if it's a religion class, you know, only as far as it like relates to like science and ethics or something like that. Right. And I think that totally shortchanges classes. It's already the way that universities are going and they're doing a bad job of doing it. And they're so, so, so huge and bloated. They're way, way overpriced. So I imagine a world in which each of these industries, each of these career paths, is combined with a um, with a robust liberal education in the great texts, um, you know, similar to what we're doing, uh, and then uh, you know, launching students into those areas of work for people that know they want to go into those specific areas. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like your original your question of is it worth it? Is it worth the the give? What you're giving up? It sounds like Hildegard is certainly going to be worth it for. For your students the investment that we ask is we don't accept any federal funds so okay. um, we we are an independent school i think that that's absolutely critical and without getting into the weeds so if anyone was interested write me and we could talk about it um without getting into the weeds one of the things that has really caused the decline of typical christian education higher education in the country is decades of over-reliance on federal funds through loans so, you know, often far north of 50, 60 percent of the tuition revenue of every school actually comes from the government through loans. And think about how that can cripple your ability and compromise your ability to make decisions for yourselves for the sake of the good of students and you know, over the course of decades. So we are um, we are affordable because we're independent from the fin- from from the federal government. Um, and we're affordable because we believe that education ought to be accessible to everybody, not because it's cheap to run. But um, we, so we are, yes, we are, I believe that we are worth it if students are willing to, to make not just the financial, but but especially the time mm-hmm. and intellectual and moral and spiritual investment. We're a demanding school. This is not for somebody who wants to clock in and clock out of classes. Uh, this is for a student who's excited to be part of a new college, establishing the culture of something new, mm-hmm. um, investing themselves and thinking of learning itself as a way of life. Do you know round about how many applicants you've received? Applications? Our application just opened about two weeks ago. So okay. um, I don't know the number of how many are in process right now, but we are capping our freshman class at 30 okay. students total. 30 students. So, 
yeah, so this is two cohorts of 15 students. Um, so uh, yeah, just know that if you're if you're interested in applying, get your application in early, we have a rolling application process. Okay. We'll give a web we'll put the website link on on the sure, yeah. show notes. But can you just say the website or where you can go to learn? Yeah, more? so our, our website is it's www.hildegard.college. So it's not a dot edu, it's dot college. Hildegard is H-I-L-D-E-G-A-R-D. Hildegard.college. And on there, if you click on request info, you'll be sent to our info form, our interest form, which you can kind of give us your information and we can get in touch with you and send you more info. Um, I should also mention that we have um, online info sessions, live info sessions once a month, uh, depending on when this podcast is released. The uh, the next one will either be October 17th, that's a Monday night, or November 5th, which is a Saturday in the morning, um, at least in the morning for me, Pacific time. So it'll be late morning for everybody else on the East Coast. So that's November 5th, and you can register to get the link for those online sessions at our events page at hildegard.college. Awesome. And are you teaching? At Hildegard? Yes. Yes, absolutely. In fact, okay. uh, we require all upper administrator, upper administrators and leaders to teach. So, okay. in, you know, this is, those familiar with higher education will know that there's what people call administrative bloat is endemic to the industry, which is hiring more and more and more administrators and kind of bureaucratic workers um, to solve problems that really need to be addressed in the classroom. And so all of our administrators teach. Wow. So how many, how many faculty is that? Well, it depends on um, we're, when we launch, I think right now we have uh, eight faculty okay. who will be teaching in year one, um, several of which are administrative faculty. And as the school grows, the faculty will grow with it. We have people from the sciences and the humanities, people from business, um, you know, really, I think a really uh, healthy balance of disciplines right now. Um, and we encourage faculty to teach in areas, not just in their areas of expertise, but also outside of them. So, you know, my background is literature, but one of my passions right now is for teaching texts in the history of science and the teaching texts in the history of mathematics because I find it so uh, so eye-opening and, and, and in, in a certain way, studying nature elevates the minds to things that are properly known with the mind. So what I mean by that is I'm, I'm used to thinking about liberal arts as mostly humanities. And most of the country, when they think of the liberal arts, they think of literature, philosophy, and history, uh -huh. and art. Um, but historically, if you name the, you know, the seven uh, traditional liberal arts, four of them are what are called the quadrivium and might be, you know, considered uh, more properly as sciences. So this is arithmetic and geometry and astronomy and music. And these four are, I mean, it's interesting to think of music as a science that way. They're more, they're more like sciences. Yeah. Um, and I think that the, the classical renewal movement in the country is beginning to reclaim these quadrivial arts as central to education. Um, because even though you're not immediately asking, okay, let's, let's, you know, let's read great fiction and poetry and theater. And let's, uh, let's, let's talk about, you know, what is the good in a, you know, a philosophy class? Um, it is, it is necessary to explore nature 
and to ask questions of nature in order to progress on to more advanced topics. And our quadrivial arts sequence begins with a year in which we're studying great texts in arithmetic and geometry, historical texts. The second year is music, one course called Music and the Soul, and the other called Music as a Science. The third year is on physics, chemistry, and biology, all, again, all taught through historical primary texts. And the fourth year is actually on metaphysics. This is moral philosophy and theology. And if you're not familiar with, if somebody listening isn't familiar with what metaphysics means, this is the study of things, of objects of learning that can only properly be known with the mind. So something like being or goodness or justice or virtue. These are not things you can measure with a ruler. These are things that you can know properly with the mind. Uh, they're intellectual objects of knowledge. In order to, uh, according to great thinkers like Aquinas and Boethius and Aristotle, in order to work your way to an understanding of these higher objects of knowledge, you have to go through experience. You have to first practice by studying the natural world. And that includes the harmony of the natural world in something like music. So um, this is a, again, you ask the question, um, you know, what will be people be teaching and what are the faculty like? I'm especially passionate about the quadrivial arts, despite that's the fact that's not my, my area of scholarly interest, um, because I find it to be such a transformative subject for students to learn when it's studied in a classical way. Do you have a favorite text to teach? I love to teach, um, I love to teach drama of all kinds. That's really kind of okay. my, my background. I love to teach historical theological books. So um, I, I enjoy teaching Thomas Aquinas, the works of Augustine. Um, and I like teaching epics. So I really love teaching the 17th century Protestant epic, Milton, John Milton's Paradise Lost, which is one of my favorite books to teach. I also like teaching Plato. So I keep on listing things, but is it what is it about uh, drama specifically that you love teaching? So my my passion for teaching drama started when I became really interested in tragedy specifically. And there's actually a passage, interestingly enough, from Augustine's Confessions in, in book three that was that was the really the inroad for me getting really interested in drama. This is in Augustine's, uh, you know, uh, St. Augustine's memoir, The Confessions, in book three, he's, you know, this is when he's like 18 to 26 or 27 years old in those years. And he moves to Carthage, uh, you know, Tunisia. And um, this is when he gets really um, promiscuous and he becomes a kind of womanizer. And he's reflecting in the beginning of book three on his, his journey uh, at Carthage through these these doubts and the suffering um, of being um, lascivious. And he compares it in the beginning of the book to uh, to going to going to see tragic dramas. And he says, you know, at that time, I was also going to tragic plays a lot. And I would, this is the late late Roman Empire and tragic plays were like especially gruesome at the time. So he'd go there and he'd see some maybe love story. And the tragic hero would be suffering and things wouldn't work out for the tragic hero, right? Because that's not what happens. And uh, Augustine remarks, what, what was this experience I was having? He asked, what was this experience I was having toward this person who was suffering this character on stage? Is it pity? Is it compassion? 
Is it fellow feeling, as my translator puts it? And uh, he answers, it can't be compassion, right? Which is to to suffer with, to have passion with. It can't be true compassion or true pity, because I know going in that this is a fake person. <laughs> I know I'm at a play, and I know nothing I can do is going to change the story because the story's already written. So what is this weird experience I'm putting myself in? And what is this feeling? This action towards the movement of my will towards somebody. I will for them not to suffer. Yeah, Yeah, but what is that? Is it really compassion or pity? No, he says, it's a privated or corrupted version of compassion Hmm. that masquerades as compassion. And for those of you who know Augustine's theology, this should remind you of his way of thinking about the nature, nature of evil foundationally, which is it's not a thing in and of itself. You can't will evil in and of itself. Evil is always a privated or corrupted or um, disoriented pursuit of something good. Uh-huh. And um, so this this is this passage, as it was really you know speaking about it with students um, at a previous college, I began to think, well, this is really interesting because what he's doing is he's Augustine's disagreeing with um, Aristotle here, who wrote the rules for tragedy and described what we know as catharsis, which Mm -hmm. is the kind of transformation of somebody's ethical mindset by um, experiencing vicariously the sufferings of a tragic hero on the stage. And I thought, you know, is Augustine saying Christians can't do that? You know, what's up? You know, what's up here? Um, And so my, my, my kind of deep interest, especially in teaching tragedy, had to do with thinking about, well, what, you know, tragedy is an, is an emotion machine, mm-hmm. right? It's an experience. Uh, you, you enter into it and you know, it is designed to create a certain emotional experience for you. And that emotional experience has a structure. It's not random. It's not just come here and feel sorry for the person. It's supposed to accomplish something, it's supposed to change you or maybe change your outlook on the world. Hmm. Uh, this is catharsis. That's what it means—a kind of clarification. Um, change your outward look on the world by experiencing this weird emotion machine. And um, what 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 is that? What forms does it take in ancient Greek literature? What about Shakespeare? You know, what is what? How does um, what is what is supposed to be the product or outcome of the emotional experience of seeing one of his tragedies? And what about today? Do we even have tragedies anymore? These are the questions that really interested me. So I love I love teaching tragedy, introducing some of these conventional historical rules to students, and then finding nuances and divergences and ways that authors are playing with this emotion machine. Mm-hmm. So this this idea of being willed, um, having a will to do something when you see a tragedy, um, either it's willing you to change your outlook on yourself um, or act differently. Um, I wanted to ask you about this concept he has of two wills. He talks about two wills. Um, and But he talks about the mind commanding the body and how can there be such a strange anomaly and why is it? Let thy mercy shine on me that I may inquire and find an answer amid the dark labyrinth of human punishment and in the darkest contritions of the sons of Adam. 
is that sort of referencing the one, I don't know, well, I don't know what the strange anomaly is, but I wonder if there's some connection like to the wills. Because you mentioned you have a will, but then when you're watching a tragedy, you can't change it. It's what you said. It's done. It's the play. Shakespeare wrote Hamlet. And we all wept at the end because it's a tragedy. But what is what is our will then? It can't be to change it, but there's a will within us that wants to do something. I don't know if yeah. that makes any sense. Yeah, no, very no, I think that's a really that's a really fascinating observation. That's a, a a difficult part of book eight there in the in the confessions. And you know, uh, uh centuries later. Um, even Augustine will write more about two wills and other works of his and other other writers, especially St. Anselm, um, and then later John Duns Scotus, will pick up on this idea of two wills and say, well, maybe we have two wills, one that desires um, what is good because it's it's of God, and one that desires good because we perceive it to be good, that is to our benefit. And we might think today and think, oh, well, something to our advantage versus something that's good because it's of God are two different, like they contradict one another. But it, it's not obvious to these thinkers like Augustine that um, something that is to our benefit would in any way be contradictory to what's good in God. Doesn't okay. God want, doesn't God also want our good? So that's more, I mean, that's happening later on after, after the confessions and other writers are starting to parse that out. Um here, I, you know, the way that I understand his discussion of two wills, and especially as it relates to this, um, this it feels like the right way to respond to a tragic hero, but in fact, it's not. And that sense of a kind of double will is that the, the confessions as a whole, rhetorically, that is in the style that it's written, it feels to me like a double helix you know, like the shape that DNA takes where there's these two strands that are kind of spiraling together. And this dance, this kind of spiraling between these two pieces uh, that are not straight, they're swerving around another. One, one is what Augustine wants and knows throughout his life. And okay. the other is um, the incompleteness of that in light of who God is. So he's always going back and forth. I want, you know, the pear tree episode is a famous one where he's he's young. I think he's 15 or so. And he steals a pear with his buddies and reading these, you know, six or seven pages about the pear tree. Anybody who says, oh, I can I can answer why he stole the tree, like what the nature of that crime or that transgression was, is oversimplifying because he gives five or six different answers and he for a while says, you know, I, what, what I loved was sin itself. What I loved was sin itself. But of course, we know later in the book uh, that there is no such thing as a, a, a will for pure evil. Okay, right. well, that can't exactly be what he means. And then he says at another point, um, well, what I loved was the thrill of it, the kind of excitement of it. And then another point, he says, well, what I love, really what I loved was doing it with my companions. There was a kind of camaraderie that came um, and he's always saying it wasn't for the pair. I actually didn't love the pair. I, I in fact, had better pairs at home. <laughs> he, he said, <laughs> I had better pairs I could have eaten at home. Um, and so this is an example of this kind of double helix style, a rhetorical style I'm describing where he's, he's sort of swirling around what he kind of knows to be objectively true. And then his experience of coming to discover and test out that truth in its partial forms that are accessible to him throughout his life. 
and so this idea of, of of evil as privated good or as the absence or corruption of good, um, which I think we see at play in book three when he's in Carthage and thinking about going to tragedies and reflecting on that experience. He has pity. He has compassion. These these emotions are not just they're not just sort of passive feelings. They are acts of the will. Right. It's a, what is compassion? but a kind of desire. What is pity, but a desire that somebody not suffer any longer. Mm-hmm. And so this act of the will, which takes the form of desire, um, it's doing so in, in contradiction with what the mind knows, but kind of purposely ignores, or at least the experience of going to a play, what we call the verisimilitude, the truth likeness is intended to help us forget that we're at a play, right? It's intended to help us forget okay. the experience is so, emotional and the song you know a lot of roman um dramatists would sing their lines instead of just speak them or declaim them you know that the the character's performance of their lines might just be so powerful that you you know you're kind of tricked in a way but you know you're tricked you tricked into a way and believing that this is real or experiencing it as if it's real and yet your mind knows it's not so this is the two wills kind of contradiction that i see somewhat at play in this in this passage of book three at least is um, I'm, it feels like the right response to have, right? You see someone suffering, of course you have pity on them and yet it's not right. It's corrupted and it's superficial, uh, in the same way that his, uh, his kind of life of fornication was a superficial version of the love that he really fell in love with. I fell in, I fell in love with the idea of love itself. It's, it's, that's a point. Huh. So I guess that's in line with no man desires a bad thing or loves a bad thing. Would Augustine say that? Would, um, yeah. So, so for, are you asking for instance, if he's, if somebody is um, loving inordinately, right. Mm -hmm. If they love somebody inordinately, um, are they truly loving? And I think the question is always for him. I mean, the answer is ultimately no, the heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. He says in the beginning. So the, the, the answer is ultimately no, that you you only love a person when you're loving that person in God. And that's a very challenging, I mean, I think that probably you could have an interpretation that says, yes, you, you can still love a person for their own sake. But sometimes when I, when I read Augustine's Confessions, I'm very challenged by this sense I get sometimes that you, um, you, you may not enjoy delightful things uh, because they're delightful. That there's this there's this feeling you get sometimes in the in the um, in what in the way that he describes delight and desire that you only ought to desire God, and it's very ascetic. That is um, it's incredibly disciplined, and I think it's again part of this double helix and only kind of the partial version of it. And one of the most powerful passages is the you know the famous "Late have I loved thee" as it's sometimes translated um, prayer. "Late have I loved thee, beauty." Uh, it's this prayer to beauty, essentially saying, I, I loved thee and you are beautiful. And because you're beautiful, you're worthy of being loved. And yet, paradoxically, beautiful things are the very things that led thee away from God. Mm-hmm. How can it be that beautiful things both are worthy of being loved? And yet, if they're worthy of being loved, how do they lead me away from God if God is love and if God is beautiful? Um, and it's this. You call that a paradox if you want. I think that it's probably, Augustine might not call it a paradox. He probably have a, a richer explanation for it. But um, 
yes, this is the, this is, I think, how he's, I mean, the most, the closest he comes to loving in the middle of the book is when he's in a kind of um, non-marital but monogamous relationship with a woman. And you get the sense that he thinks it's good and that he truly loves this woman and mm -hmm. uh, realizes that he can't and that it's, he doesn't love her in God. And I think that's a, it's a struggle for me to read partly because I think it's a struggle for Augustine himself to be thinking about as he's writing it. I'm just wondering why do you think, why is Augustine so important up there with Aquinas or more so maybe, I don't know, to. Wow. Maybe yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I'm, and I'm no expert on late, the late Roman empire, but uh, in this kind of antique period, you're after Constantine, you're after the development of the Nicene Creed. Christianity is beginning to integrate with state, um, where bishops were beginning to act as kind of um, also public officials in some way, and public officials that were not Christians were beginning to uh, kind of honor certain rites, such as baptism, as meaningful, um, even in a, in a civic way. And so there's, you see the um, the Christianization of civilization, even in public ways, on the rise during Augustine's reign. Of course, Augustine dies during a siege by a Christian heresy, but uh, you know, a heretical group. But um, so I think there's a historical moment for why he's 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 really important uh, for you know much of the Middle Ages. It was the city of God and Christian and Augustine's you know work against the Donatists uh, heresy and on Christian teaching and these other works of Augustine's that I think were more influential. Um, and today, Confessions is probably, I think, without a doubt, probably the most popular of Augustine's works. And that's an interesting phenomenon itself. You know, why is he so influential today? And what we, what I see in him is an incredibly sharp philosophical mind, especially in these passages in like book seven or eight, where he's talking about platonic or neoplatonic philosophy and He's thinking about how far can philosophy get you to true faith and then what, what are its limits? And so he's very philosophically minded and yet he's willing to use the imagination um, in ways that other theologians had not yet, I think, really allowed. I mean, you do in some of the kind of martyrologies and some, some of these um, epistles because they're epistolary, they're written in a certain rhetorical orientation as a letter to somebody. But Augustine's Confessions is a memoir, and he's constantly saying things, kind of trying on ways of thinking about things that he knows are only the partial true, and then he switches to another partial truth and then to another, and then he kind of gives up, and then there'll be a paragraph that's a prayer. And so there's this, there's this, there's this rhythm to it. And my the translation that I um prefer, I'm sure that a theologian would disagree with me here, but the translation I prefer is by Sarah Rudin. It's a pretty new translation. It's very literary. takes a lot of artistic license that's rooted in R-U-D-E-N. And it's just um, stunningly kind of visceral and beautiful in the way he, I mean, I can read you. Let me just read one short passage from the beginning and you'll see what I mean. Um, so this is just the very first the very first you know, two sentences of the book in my version reads you he's, he's talking when he says master he means god you are mighty master and to be praised with a powerful voice great is your goodness and of your wisdom there can be no reckoning 
Yet to praise you is the desire of a human being who is some part of what you created. A human hauling is deathliness in a circle, hauling in a circle the evidence of his sin and the evidence that you stand against the arrogant. Hmm. It almost reminds me of Dante's Purgatorio and this, you know, one, uh, you know, a soul in Purgatory hauling their their burden, their deathliness, their mortality in a circle. That's a beautiful translation. That's one that I have. It doesn't have the image of the circle that constantly, which Augustine, Augustine. I say Augustine. Augustine, Augustine sounds good too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this whole the whole book is about constantly wanting to please God and failing. And so that idea of the cycle, mm. it's not, it doesn't end. It's, a constant salvation is a constant process, but this, it just says bears his mortality about with him. So you might have that sense of wandering, but you don't have that. It's an interesting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and so surely anyone reading Rudin's translation know that she's trying to capture the, the rhetorical spirit of it. If there's a, you know, there are puns that she's trying to recreate that don't come through typical translations and there's a lot of very kind of even coarse body imagery in this in this translation, but I find it kind of awaken the book in a new way. Well, check it out. Um, check it out. It was great talking to you. Everybody check out Hildegard.college. Is there anything else you want to? It was, you know, her? really good, really good to talk to you, Larissa. I mean, I will say that um, I I think that higher education, uh, you know, there are movement, new movements of higher education afoot, and the Albertus Magnus Institute is participating in that itself. We are looking specifically right now for the inaugural freshman class of this college. And so this is a unique experience for somebody who wants to be part of a new culture, building a new college, getting involved with student leadership, part of something new, small, intentional, focused, rigorous, demanding, but um, but I think meaningful in a way that you're not going to find in another kind of another college. This mm-hmm. is your chance. So this is, you know, we are only new once. And so I'm really excited to see what our first freshman class will be like and who those people will be. Yeah. So you go check out Hildegard.college. You'll only have a chance one time. One, there's only one first. That's right. There's only one so, first. Anyways, it was really great talking to you. Um, next time. Next time. Thanks for having me. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. To learn more, way more by becoming a fellow today visit magnusinstitute.org copyright 2022 albertus magnus institute incorporated all rights reserved